from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Charles Gibbs Smith giving the lecture on Sir George Cayley on the 9th of October 1973. Words used by a modern French authority, Charles Dorfus, to describe Sir George Cayley, born in 1773 and died in 1857. A scholarly Yorkshire baronet who until fairly recently was unknown to many historians of applied science. This curious state of affairs has been righted by the researches of the late J. Hodgson, of Dolphus, of the late Captain Pritchard, uh, and I hesitate to say of myself, who have now secured universal agreement in regarding Cayley as the true inventor, or perhaps originator, as a better word, of the modern aeroplane, and the originator of the science of aerodynamics as applied to aircraft. And in 1962, the Royal Society itself admitted that the absence of the name of Sir George Cayley from the role of fellows is one of the most notable omissions. Uh, the first man carrying aeroplane to make powered, sustained and controlled flights and land on ground as high as that from which it took off was the Flyer 1 of Wilbur Orville Wright, which made four flights by the Kill Hills in North Carolina during the morning of se- December the 17th, 1903. The first practical-powered aeroplane in history was the Wright Slyer 3 of 1905, which could turn, circle, make figures of eight, and remain flying with ease for half an hour or more. By the summer of 1909, symbolized by Blériot's crossing of the Channel and of the first great air meeting at Reims, the aeroplane had reached a sufficiently sophisticated stage of development to qualify as a practical and accepted vehicle, with some half-dozen reliable types on the market. The aeroplane of 1909 flew in two basic configurations, biplane and monoplane. <clears throat> Each of the six aircraft comprised the main lifting services, a fuselage or nacelle to house the engine and the pilot, a horizontal elevator for controlling pitch, a vertical rudder for controlling yaw, and a voluntarily controlled device, either wing warping or ailerons, which would increase the angle of attack of port or starboard wings for controlling row. All but one of the 99 aircraft had a sufficiency of inherent longitudinal, lateral and directional stability in flight. This was built into them in the form of a dihedral angle as between the main planes and the tail plane, and dihedral angles between the port and starboard wings, and one or more vertical surfaces to act as keel area. Each machine was equipped with one or two propelling air screws, working either in front of the wings as tractors or behind them as pushers, and each machine was supported on the ground by an undercarriage. All but one of these features and principles, control in role, which was the exception, were proposed, propounded, and published, and many of them tried out in practice by a Yorkshire baronet of the Regency, Sir George Cayley. He later came to work in many fields of applied science, as well as taking an active part in public affairs during his long and tranquil life at the family seat of Brumpton near Scarborough. But aerial navigation, as he called it, was his earliest and most lasting enthusiasm. He is now seen to be the true inventor of the modern aeroplane and the originator of the science of aerodynamics applied to aircraft. Cayley was born at Scarborough on the 27th of December, 1773. 
He was particularly fortunate in the wisdom of a mother who encouraged his lively curiosity and later found for him two admirable and talented tutors in George Walker, FRS, and George Cadogan Morgan. The Unitarianism of his mother and the similar non-conformist views of his tutors must also have acted as a beneficial and powerful stimulus to the young Cady. In 1792, he succeeded to the title of sixth baronet and in 1795 married Walker's daughter, Sarah. This happy and for him lifelong marriage added further security and stability to a background already conducive to contemplation and research. Although aeronautics was always to remain his favorite subject, there were only two decades of profound creativity in pursuit of it. <clears throat> the first from about 1799 to 1809, the second from 1843 to 1853. This long interregnum saw some important aeronautical contributions from Cayley, notably in airship design, but they were essentially developments or refinements of his earlier concepts. In non-aeronautical activities, there was indeed one highly original item to his credit during this period, the invention in 1825 of the Caterpillar tractor, from which derive all modern tract vehicles of peace and war. Psychologists may perhaps find interesting matter for research in two such flowering seasons of invention during the long lifespan of one man. The first through the ages of about 26 to 36, the second through the ages of 70 to 80. The latter a remarkable phenomenon by any standards. <clears throat> the first aeronautical device Cady made in the year 1796 was a copy of the successful Lenoir Bienvenu model, seen here, model helicopter of 1784, with two contra-rotating rotors operated by a bow drill mechanism. Cayley, oddly enough, did not know the origin of this toy and must simply have read about it or a description of it, and so he substituted four feathers stuck in a cork for each rotor instead of the Frenchman's twin-bladed, silk-covered airframes. He was enthusiastic about both its performance and its significance as a machine which, as he said, could rise in the air by mechanical means. And he immediately speculated upon a man carrier along the same lines. Cayley's version of 1896 received wide publicity from 1809 onwards. And, odd as it may seem, but quite obviously demonstrable, it led directly to the whole of the, mo of the world's modern helicopter development today. One can follow this step by step, step right throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Within a few years, with no previous workers to guide him or suggest the lines of approach, he was to arrive at a correct and mature conception of the modern aeroplane, and so lay the secure foundations upon which all subsequent developments in aviation have been built. He had, of course, paid careful attention to the work of Robbins and Smeaton with whirling arms in the 18th century, who pioneered the study of air resistance in relation to ballistics and windmills. But none of these investigators ever conceived the application of their researches to aircraft. It was typical of Cayley's genius that, with the central idea of flight in mind, he sought data in whatever fields he saw were relevant and applied them to his own problems. Thus, for example, in 1804, as we shall see, he turned to the whirling arm, first used by Robbins in 1746, and obtained valuable results which he applied to aircraft wings. 
It was some time between this, as he said, first experiment I made upon this subject, that is to say the helicopter model, and the year 1799 that Cayley took his first and most vital step towards inaugurating the modern aeroplane concept. The separation of the system of thrust from the system of lift. This was the crucial breakaway from the ornithopter tradition of centuries. It meant picturing the bird with its wings held rigid as if in gliding flight and propelled by some form of auxiliary mechanism. This achievement was enshrined on a silver disc dated 1799 and now in the Science Museum, which is in effect the first design in history for a modern configuration aeroplane. There is a fixed main wing, a cruciform tail unit comprising combined elevator and rudder, propellers in the form of paddles after the wings, and an nacelle for the pilot. The curvature of the wing was due to air pressure, as Cayley made clear later. He was aware of the superior lifting qualities of the rigid cambered wing, but generally relied on the curvature being effective aerodynamically with the sail wing, rather than with the rigid cambered structure. To offset the effect of the somewhat crude rendering on the disc, inevitable in an amateur etching on metal, there survives the highly professional plan view which Cayley drew of the same machine. It shows the, paddle oper the paddles operated by an oar transmission from the cockpit and the tail unit operated by a tiller. Although aware since 1796 of the action and potentialities of the air screw, Cayley preserved just enough links with the past to have a hankering after ornithoptering propulsion systems. And although he steadily progressed from the flapper which produced both lift and propulsion in the manner of a bird's outer primary feathers to the purely propulsive flapper, this preoccupation with reciprocating propellers and his general aversion to rotating machines marks one of his few retrogressive trays. But for the most part, the stature of his reasoning and imagination in this first productive decade was superlative. Although brought up in the shadow of the balloon, whose invention in 1783 must have impressed him deeply, Cayley gave Aerostation only one searching look at the start of his career before leaving it to simmer and await less tensely creative times. That searching look in 1804 saw the aerostat in the form of, the, of a dirigible balloon as only powered flight interested him whether the machine was lighter than air or heavier. He at once recommended a streamlined form, as he says, a very oblong spheroid, but varied according to what may be found the true solid of least resistance. A semi-rigid structure with a cruciform tail unit at the stern of the envelope and a long gondola slung beneath. Apart from this diversion, he remained single-mindedly devoted to the heavier-than-air flying machine. For part of the time, the subject of bird flight plagued him with its problems, as he was bent on using ornithopter techniques for propulsion. It was not until 1808 that he had worked through Leonardo da Vinci's error of believing that birds flap their wings downwards and backwards like a swimmer, a thing they cannot do, of course. Then, by way of an irking mid-stage of his own imagining, he came to realize that the outer portions of a bird's wings heel over, as he said, collectively or in the form of multiple emarginated feathers to provide a thrust component as propellers. Cayley was the first to comprehend properly this technique of bird propulsion. His concurrent aerodynamic experiments formed the outstanding achievement of this 1799 to 1809 decade. 
In the now classic pronouncement of aeronautical history, Cayley wrote, the whole problem is confined within these limits, i.e. to make a surface support a given weight by the application of power to the resistance of air. In 1804, he used for the first time in history the whirling arm in the service of aeronautics to test an aerofoil at varying angles of incidence. This was immediately followed by what ranks as the first modern configuration aeroplane of history, although only a small model. It was a simple enough device, but of far-reaching significance. <coughs> a kite was fixed on, the, on top of a pole propped up at a six-degree angle of incidence with a cruciform tail unit attached by a universal joint and lowered to a positive angle of incidence of 11.5 degrees. A movable weight on the underside of the pole was used to adjust the position of the center of gravity. <coughs> he wrote to this little machine, it was very pretty to see it sail down a steep hill, and it gave the idea that a larger instrument would be a better and a safer conveyance down the Alps than even the sure-footed mule let him meditate his track ever so intensely. The least inclination of the tail towards the right or left made it shape its course like a ship by the rudder. An interesting interlude occurred at the time when, in 1804, Napoleon was assembling his invasion fleet at Boulogne. In 1804-1805, Cayley turned his mind patriotically to problems of artillery. He both designed, made, and tested in practice a number of finned missiles in order to lengthen the range of the British guns. Although reported to the authorities, nothing was done about the matter and these prophetic designs were soon forgotten. <clears throat> By mid-1809, Cayley had investigated the lifting properties of cambered wings, the movement of the center of pressure, and the problem of streamlining his solid of least resistance closely approximating to a modern low-drag aerofoil section. He even came to realize that an area of low pressure is formed above the wing. He had also decided that a dihedral setting of the wings provided a better means of securing stability in roll than pendulum action, although he sometimes returned to pendulum stability in his models. He had advanced from model gliders to the building and successful testing, unmanned, of a full-sized glider of, of, of some 300 square feet. This machine incorporated the same basic features except for the dihedral set wings that he'd laid down at the turn of the century. Unfortunately, there is no <coughs> record of what this machine looked like. This glider was flown in 1809. He wrote of it as follows. It was very beautiful to see this noble white bird sail majestically from the top of a hill to any given point of the plane below it, according to the set of its rudder. Last year, I made a machine having a surface of 300 square feet. Its steerage and steadiness were perfectly proved, and it would sail obliquely downward in any direction according to the set of the rudder. Even in this state, when any person ran forward in it with his full speed, taking advantage of a gentle breeze in front, it would bear upward so strongly as scarcely to allow him to touch the ground and would frequently lift him up and convey him several yards together. This is the first account in history of a flight, shall we say a very small flight, but a flight by a full-size scientifically designed aeroplane. Along the way, 
Cayley had invented in 1808 the tension or the cycle type wheel for aircraft undercarriages and suggested also light tubular structure beam construction for aircraft utilizing bamboo. <clears throat> it was inevitably the problem of power which brought him as much disappointment and frustration as his aerodynamic achievements brought him satisfaction. He dismissed the steam engine for its poor power weight ratio and experimented briefly with a small gunpowder motor in the hope that fruitful results would develop in the internal combustion field. At the same time, 1807, he formulated and published his first specification for the hot air, calorific as he called the engine, of which he is the accepted inventor. He was to pursue this type of motor throughout his life to the considerable benefit of industrial power supply, but not, as he so deeply regretted, of aeronautics. And where aircraft propulsion was concerned, Cayley, as noted earlier, favored the use of flappers based on the outer propelling portions of bird's wings, although he occasionally, but not enthusiastically, considered air screw propulsion. As his search for a suitable engine was perpetually fruitless, he gave much attention to man-powered transmission systems although he was later to become aware that sustained horizontal flight by this means was impossible with the materials he could command. Overall, lay Cayley's supreme confidence in the ultimate success of the powered aeroplane, a confidence preserved throughout his life, and it was charmingly summed up in two of his obiter dicta. I feel perfectly confident, however, that this noble art will soon be brought home to man's general convenience and that we shall be able to transport ourselves and families with their goods and chattels more securely by air than by water and with a velocity of from 20 to 100 miles per hour. To produce this effect it is only necessary to have a first mover which will generate more power in a given time in proportion to its weight than the animal system of muscles. And the second this famous sentence of Cady's, an uninterrupted navigable ocean that comes to the threshold of every man's door ought not to be neglected as a source of human gratification and advantage. It was in Nicholson's Journal of Natural Philosophy, Chemistry and the Arts for November 1809, February 1810 and March 1810 there appeared Cayley's triple paper, as he called it, on aerial navigation. It is at once the first and the greatest classic of aviation history, and laid the foundations of the science of aerodynamics. Ironically, Cayley was here spurred into print by a report that at Vienna, Jacob Dagen had flown briefly with wings by means of his own unaided muscle power. One can only suppose that Cayley was overtaken, no matter how happily for posterity, by wishful thinking. For he swallowed the Dagon story whole, and used Dagon's alleged flights to bolster his own hopes and aspirations for aviation. Dagon relied, in fact, on almost all his weight being supported by a balloon, thus allowing him to perform what today is known as balloon jumping, aided for a minute or two by vigorous waving of his ingenious flap valve wings. Most eyewitness reports and most of the contemporary engravings, no doubt with an eye to news value, conveniently omitted any mention of the balloon.
Cayley's tri triple paper of 1809-10 is a curiously disconnected, even disorganized display of brilliance, deriving from, as he said, a number of memoranda which I've made various times upon this subject. But in the 10,000 or so words he set down, Cayley summarized the basic ideas and achievements of his golden decade, 1799 to 1809. For the present, they were to fall on deaf or ignorant ears, as aerial navigation was in an age dominated by Napoleon, Wellington and the Prince Regent, as Cayley said, a subject rather bordering upon the ludicrous in the public's estimation. Yet here, for anyone to grasp who could, was the instructional manual by which a fixed-wing glider could have been built and flown 80 years before Otto Lilienthal, with a flight control system far more advanced than anyone would use before the Wright brothers. For more than 30 years after the paper of 1809-10, the pursuit of aeroplane flight was to be reduced in Cayley's active concern to a few desultory but talented observations and experiments. These included the first idea in history for a tandem wing machine, 1815, an interim improvement in model glider design, 1818, and improvements in whirling arm testing in 1818 as well. But powered aerostation, dormant in his mind since 1804, came to the front in a burst of enthusiasm during 1816 to 1817. And he correctly anticipated that the airship rather than the aeroplane would be the first powered aircraft to achieve success. Of his three aircraft designs for this brief period, the most advanced is the last, which Cayley presented in two versions one powered with air screws, the other with his favorite clappers and counterpoises. In admirable published papers, he elaborated his ideas for the semi-rigid airship with streamlined envelope, including one based on the Woodcock's body, and added the prophetic feature of compartmentation of the gas bag into separate cells. Enlightened and historically interesting, as was Cayley's work on airships, he did not build them, and his influence on subsequent airship development was negligible. Twenty years later, in 1837, he returned to a vigorous advocacy of the airship. And then again, he let it slide for a few years, and yet again returned to it in 1840, when he made the strongest of his several efforts to form an aeronautical society, the Royal Aerostatic Institution, which he called it, with airship ideas predominant. He published his last significant statement on the subject of airships in 1843. The period from 1810 to 1843 also saw Cayley occupied productively in a variety of other fields. He published a pamphlet on parliamentary reform in 1818, was elected chairman of the Whig Club of York in 1820, traveled on the continent with his family, helped to found the Yorkshire Philosophical Society in 1821, invented and patented the Caterpillar tractor under the title Universal Railway in 1825, became a co-founder of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in 1831, was elected Whig MP for Scarborough in 1832, made a speech on land drainage, on which, by the way, he was a leading authority, to the Institution of Civil Engineers in London in 1838, and co-founded the Regent Street Polytechnic Institution in 1838 which became the Polytechnic, the Poly of today. Here is Cayley speaking of this first Poly. 
We much want, he said, a good scientific board confined by no aristocracy of orthodox men who sit like an incubus on all rising talent which is not of their own shop. Freedom is the essence of improvement in science. Cayley also published papers on optics and on railway safety devices, the first of several in 1840, and wrote one of the most moving human appeals at the time, as supported by cash from his pocket, for the relief of the widespread industrial distress in Yorkshire in 1842. During this period of more than 30 years, no domestic or foreign inventor either proposed or attempted any heavier-than-air flying machine remotely approaching Cayley's formulation of 1809-10. Cayley's last burst of creativity in aviation filled another golden decade, starting in 1843, when he had reached the age of 70. As with the 1809-10 paper, a trigger set him off. On this occasion, it was the publication of Henson's design for an aerial steam carriage in 1843, one of the most remarkable and influential achievements in aeronautical history. Influential because it was repeated and published and republished and republished again over and over again throughout the whole century. Incidentally, it was Henson who later, in 1846, was to address Cayley correctly as the father of aerial navigation not, by the way, so often quoted as the father of British aviation. He was the father of aerial aviation, correctly addressed by Henson. Cayley reacted a little ungenerously to Henson's aeroplane concept. After publishing an excellent retrospective essay on his own work in aviation, he followed it with a curiously disjointed paper, which first criticized Henson adversely, then advocated the airship and finally presented a materially developed design for a converted plane. The latter he unaccountably adapted without acknowledgement another man's design, in this case an obscure young inventor called Robert Taylor. The only occasion in the whole of Cayley's long life that I've ever ever discovered him doing something not quite straight. Cayley's proposed aircraft comprised four helicopter rotors which took the machine up vertically and then these rotors closed to form four slightly cambered circular wings inclined inward dihedrally in pairs with two conventional pusher air screws coming into operation for horizontal propulsion. This was incidentally the first biplane to be proposed in history. In the course of his strictures on Henson's design, Cayley had condemned the large span monoplane wings as being structurally dangerous, despite the king posts and bracing system Henson had incorporated. In their place, said Cayley, would it not be more likely to answer the purpose to compact it into the form of a three-decker, each deck being eight or ten feet from the other, to give free room for the passage of air between them? This suggestion of multiplane construction led directly to Stringfellow's unsuccessful but much illustrated and therefore very influential triplane model of 1868. I'm sorry, here are uh, two more illustrations of Cayley's own converted plane, the plan view and the uh, uh, front elevation. 
1845, in 1845, there occurred one of those brief and brilliant interludes when Cayley told of the tragedy of one of his workmen who had had to have his hand amputated after an accident, turned to and in his usual and highly practical way designed and made an artificial hand for the man. In 1849, Cayley proceeded to practice what he had preached by building a full-sized triplane, the drawings of which I had the incredible good fortune to discover. It had a wing area of 338 square feet and an empty weight of 130 pounds. This was in all respects a highly sophisticated design, except for its low aspect ratio wings and, of course, the inevitable flapper propulsion system. A technical consideration of this remarkable product will be found in a minute in the discussion with the man-carrying glider design of 1852, since the constructional features and the operation of both machines, together with the so-called coachman carrier of 1853, were closely allied and anticipated the essentials of the modern aeroplane. But Cayley's report of the 1849 machine, which he later called the Old Flyer. Interesting, by the way, to remember that the Wright brothers called, quite naturally, their first aeroplane a flyer. May be quoted here. The balance, wrote Cayley, the balance and steerage was ascertained, and a boy of about 10 years of age was floated off the ground for several yards on descending a hill, and also for about the same space by some persons pulling the apparatus against a very slight breeze by a rope. Uh, <coughs> memories of uh, Percy Pilcher, of course, will come into many people's minds. Meanwhile, also in 1849, in passing, uh, he referred again to the gunpowder motor, second of his career. Uh, I'm so sorry, I've uh, gone ahead too far. Still in 1849, this brilliant person briefly turned his attention to the problems of safety in mines. I'm going quite off, I'm afraid. We must just forget that. And look, this was the... Uh, I'll start again after my uh, quote from Cayley about his 49 machine. Meanwhile, also in 1849, let's refer to this slide, Cayley had built and flown an improved type of model glider with the rudder now riding on the elevator and so independently adjustable. The wing was a fabric, as usual, and derived its curvature from air pressure and not built in camber. It had a wing area of 16 square feet and a weight of 16 pounds. Still in 1849, Cayley briefly turned his attention to problems of safety in mines and built a swinging plate anemometer, possibly the first in history in order to measure the velocity of air currents in the mine. This was one of the wonderful, uh, beneficent uh, gifts of heaven uh, to me from out of nowhere. This drawing turned up in a, an unknown diary of Cayley's. In 1850, he turned again in passing to the gunpowder motor. This was the second of his career. 
This was used for experiments and test rig to operate small-scale flappers. Also, again in the same year, he returned to the whirling arm, this time with a version for testing large-scale aerofoils. Also, on, of course, the whirling arm principle, uh, for testing another device, which I haven't got a slide for, a rather dull little machine, but yet the first in history uh, to test streamlined shapes. It was a little, a little pivot arm with one arm of the rotor, as it were, uh, beveled round and the other square. This was the first device in the, in the history to test a streamlined shape. My chance rediscovery of an illustrated article published in the Mechanics magazine in 1852 by Cayley richly supplements what we know about the 1849 machine and suggests much more about the coachman carrier. The article was entitled Sir George Cayley's Governable Parachutes, parachute being the word he applied to his unpowered models and also to his full-size gliders, as well as to parachutes proper. And this 1852 glider design, inherently stable and with pilot-operated control surfaces, including the following features. Uh, by the way, you must always, in Cayley's drawings, when they're published, discount these ridiculous little eagle heads and stupidities and flags flying all over the place, which of course uh, were embellishments of the woodcutter and not of Cayley himself. The combined wing and tail area was given as about 500 square feet. The empty weight 150 pounds and the angle of glide at 5 to 6 degrees. Those were Cayley's own figures. No powered or unpowered aeroplane incorporating these features was to fly successfully until 1908. The only basic feature on a modern aeroplane omitted by Cayley was roll control by wing warping or ailerons. And the only secondary feature omitted, although Cayley realized its function and value, was the high aspect ratio wing with built-in camber. With the addition of such refinements as cambered wings, hinged surfaces, control cable runs, and a control column, such as were later appreciated and designed by that other genius, in this case in France, Alphonse Penault, in the 1870s, successful gliding flight could have been achieved in the 1860s or in the 1870s at the latest. But Cayley's 1852 design, despite the wide circulation of the Mechanics magazine, inexplicably failed to meet the eyes of any man sufficiently interested to appreciate and exploit it. And so it slipped quietly into oblivion. This sequence of invention, publication, neglect, and disappearance was precisely as Cayley himself predicted, with later inventors too indolent or self-centered to seek out what had gone before and build thereon. The machines of Otto Lilienthal, for example, 1891-96, which were the first practical gliders in history and directly inspired the Wright brothers, were almost primitive affairs compared with Cayley's proposed aircraft. The 1852 glider design, which incidentally Cayley proposed should be launched from a balloon, was curious enough a monoplane, this despite Cayley's fear of large spread structures, no matter how well braced. But the significance of this proposed machine is not only in its intrinsic merit, for the detailed description and illustration of both structure and operation are clearly applicable to the 1849 boy carrier and 
to what we now call the 1853 Coachman Carrier. With the substitution of triplane for monoplane wings, the addition of the manually operated flappers were ineffectual and can be discounted, of course. It can be appreciated what astonishing achievements the two full-size machines represent. Although neither made pilot-controlled flights, each incorporated the basic character and flight control systems of the 1852 design. It was in 1853, before he was to send his coachman flying at Brunton, that Cayley contributed three important papers on aviation to the bulletin of the newly formed Société Aerostatique et Météorologique de France in Paris. It was these papers, translated into French, which quietly worked their way into the aeronautical consciousness of Europe. Two of the papers had been previously published in England. The third was the first part of the paper, which luckily survived in a complete manuscript copy, which Cayley preserved. Almost as important, all the original illustrations, Cayley was, it should be added, an accomplished draftsman, were returned from France, and they also survived. Together, these published papers set forth the basis of heavier than air aerodynamics and aeroplane operation long before anything else of the kind had appeared on the continent, and provided the aerodynamic basis for the pioneers of the future. Two noteworthy items were incorporated in the second part, which was unpublished, of the 1853 French paper, apart from Cayley's general description of aviation. One was a new formed helicopter toy, an improvement on what Cayley refers to as the currently popular Chinese flying top. Nobody knows why he ever called it Chinese, because there's no indication that any of us can ever find anything Chinese. It comprised a single three-bladed tin rotor, initially rotated in its holder by sharply pulling on the string wound round its spindle. The other was the last and most sophisticated of his model gliders, with the rudder still riding on the tail unit and the wings still made of stretched fabric between the leading and trailing edge spars. The wing area of this machine was about 26 square feet, and the weight about 16 pounds. Later in 1853, probably in the late summer or autumn, Cady built and flew what he called his new flyer, in which the world's first man-carrying, but not piloted, glider flight was made across a dale at Brumpton, the aviator being the baronet's unwilling coachman. I'm not pretending, and nobody, of course, does pretend that this was a flight in anything except uh, a cargo aspect. However, it was a human being in a glider. Cayley's granddaughter, Mrs. Thompson, thank heavens, was an eyewitness and reported the flight as follows. Of course, everyone was out on the high east side and saw the start from close to. The coachman went in the machine and landed on the west side at about the same level. I think it came down rather a shorter distance than expected. The coachman got himself clear, and the watchers had got across. He shouted, Please, Sir George, I wish to give notice. I was hired to drive and not to fly. That is the origin, by the way, of that famous story, in Mrs. Thompson's own words. And then she ends this fascinating paragraph by saying, That's all I recollect. The machine was put high away in the barn, and I used to sit and hide in it from governess when so inspired. And the dreadful thing is that we have reason to believe that that machine was more or less intact, certainly by the last years of the century, and possibly even into this.
and was probably destroyed by some well-meaning character who wanted uh, some wood. The full configuration of this famous machine is not yet known, but various notes, sketches and figures suggest that it was a multiplane, probably a triplane, and similar in appearance to the 1849 boy carrier. Apart from the products of the late 1840s and early 1850s already noted, Cayley's last active years in aeronautics were mainly occupied with design for complex multiplanes, in particular a semi-tandem triplane with pack of flapper propulsion amidships. He seems to have borrowed this idea of tandem configuration with the distinctive between-wings propulsion from a new illustration in Thomas Walker's revised edition of his Treatise Upon the Art of Flying, which appeared in 1831. But otherwise, the machine was a highly original creation owing nothing to other inventors. This is Walker's machine. The most developed machine of which we have notes and partial drawings was to have a total effective wing area of 433 square feet and a total all-up weight of 270 pounds, allowing 150 pounds for the pilot. Cayley still showed his persistent preference for flappers rather than air screws uh, in this uh, and many other uh, fragments of the designs for these uh, last aircraft of his life. None of them were ever built. It is difficult to date the tandem designs, but from scattered hints and other items that are datable, the period seems 15, 1853 to 1854 as a probable guess. It was the last major aeronautical concern of Cayley's life. He was now in his 80s, but his intellectual powers were still formidable. And then he died peacefully at Brampton Hall on the 15th of December, 1857, shortly before his 84th birthday. Cayley not only laid the foundations of the science of aerodynamics and invented the modern aeroplane concept, he also built and flew models and full-size machines to demonstrate the principles he formulated. Could I have the lights on it? When it comes to his influence in the development of the aeroplane, this too was paramount. Although Cayley's classic triple paper of 1809-10 was only reprinted for the first time in 1876, he had directly inspired Henson and Stringfellow in England and through them posterity. Equally important was the continent where the aeronautical lead was temporarily ascendant in the 1850s and early 1860s. Here Cayley's influence worked directly through his two and a half papers of 1853 and his groundwork of aviation rapidly became a common currency whose author was forgotten. In 1877, his 89-10 paper was reprinted in France and his name once more rose to prominence. We even find the editor of Europe's premier aeronautical journal, L'Aeronaut, writing in that year, C'est Cayley qui a véritablement fondé dans la Grande-Bretagne l'école des aviateurs aujourd'hui très florissante. A pretty good tribute at that period from a Frenchman. It was probably the French surge of invention between 1850 and 1865 which, based on Cayley, fed his influence back to Britain to meet that of Henson and Stringfellow. His influence would, of course, have been far stronger and the impact of his work more immediate if both British and continental inventors had been more research-minded and less self-centered. In the history of technology, there is no subject in which the lack of historical sense among the inventors themselves was more marked and more incomprehensible than in aeronautics. 
the reputation of Cayley always stood high amongst those who knew of or corresponded with him. Men such as Henson, Stringfellow, Babbage, Gurney and Lord Stanhope. Also with the pioneers of the later 19th and early 20th centuries who realized their debt to him, such as Wenham, Chanute and the Wright brothers. And with the historically minded aviators of the first generation of successful powered flight. But for all the others, by the end of the century, Cayley's name was virtually unknown to the general public. And even the cultivated man of science or letters knew nothing of it. And when volume three, Brown to Challoner, of the Dictionary of National Biography, to its great disgrace, came to be published in 1908, Cayley was not included. As at that time, aeronautical history scarcely existed outside the records of aerostation, and as the general bias of the DNB was hardly in favor of science and technology, this exclusion is scarcely to be wondered at. If you count the number of worthy divines and other members of the cloth, you will realize how easily Cayley could get excluded. In the great 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, Cayley rates two inadequate mentions, interesting though they are, in volume 10, on flying and flight, which oddly enough is unsigned. Much of Cayley's true stature was first made known to a wider audience when the late John E. Hodgson, whom I had great privilege to know, and really inspired me of an interest in history, lectured on Cayley in 1923 and published his History of Aeronautics in Great Britain in 1924, a standard work with which all of you will be familiar. Hodgson also deserves our profound gratitude for his discovery of the bulk of the Cayley manuscripts at Brunton Hall, his publication of the earliest notebook, and his gaining the generous consent of the late baronet Sir Kenelm Cayley to the depositing of the manuscripts in the Royal Aeronautical Society's library. Hodgson was, of course, primarily concerned with rediscovering Cayley and presenting him in general terms as a great pioneer. And one of the incredible mysteries is how Cayley, I mean, uh, how Hodgson managed to miss or how the Cayley family managed not to show Hodgson uh, <coughs> the four notebooks which arrived on my desk one day completely out of the blue, which Elizabeth Cayley thought I might like to see, putting it pretty mildly. It was Captain Lawrence Pritchard, of course, for many years secretary of this great society, who next took over the main Cayley research. And in 1961, published the first biography, Sir George Cayley, the inventor of the aeroplane. His chief task has been to view Cayley in the round, as it were, and to fix this new giant in perspective and to present him and his manifold activities to the public. I may add a small anecdote here. Poor Lawrence uh, never forgave fate uh, for presenting me with these wretched notebooks which I found planted on my desk one morning, stinking of country, lovely country smells of earthy and farmyard odors because he couldn't not believe that Elizabeth Cayley knew all about them and had held them back. And he, poor, uh, poor Lawrence uh, was very, very upset at this indeed. But I can assure him and his ghost, which may be here at the moment, uh, that no disservice was ever intended to him. And if Elizabeth had known of those volumes, 
she would have given them to him. And it was only by the sheerest good fortune that I was the lucky person to have them planted in my lap. The present speaker then took over what may be described as the third phase of the Cayley Research Programme. And in his Science Museum publication, Sir George Cayley's Aeronautics in 1962, has concentrated on a detailed historical survey of Cayley's aeronautical ideas, achievements and development. My incredibly good fortune in discovering or rediscovering vital documents reached such a pitch at one time that I began to feel perhaps that the old baronet himself might even be looking over my shoulder and taking a hand. It is to be hoped that Cayley's many other scientific and technological interests will find their recorders in the near future, but I rather fear this will not be so. Very, very few people have come forward, unfortunately, to uh, work on the incredible amount of things upstairs in our wonderful library that still remain. In the course of his long life, Cayley revealed a mind similar to Leonardo da Vinci's, and in many ways is remarkable. This is not an idle comparison. The more we discover about Cayley, the more fully may we endorse the opinion that he was the true inventor of the aeroplane, the founder of aerodynamics, and as Henson addressed him, as I've already told you, in that famous phrase, the father of aerial navigation. More specifically, when you come down to brass tacks, we have tried to set down what he really did, what he was the first to do, and it's a pretty formidable list. He was the first properly to divorce the system of thrust from the system of lift, providing a fixed-wing airframe with an independent means of propulsion, thereby inaugurating the concept of the powered fixed-wing aeroplane, 1799. He was the first to design a proper fixed-wing powered aeroplane in 1799 and the first to build one, 1809, although, of course, uh, inadequately, in fact, not powered in the modern sense at all, and, of course, was not tested as such, but it was only as a glider. He was the first to use a whirling arm for aeronautical research, 1804, which was also the first successful modern configuration aeroplane, with main lifting surfaces, longitudinal stability, and direction controlling tail surfaces. He was the first to realize the laterally stabilizing effect of the dihedral angle and design an aircraft incorporating it, 1805, to incorporate it in a kite and model glider, and to publish this. The first to realize that a canvas aerofoil provides greater lift than a flat one, and to publish this. The first to investigate the movement of the center of pressure on aerofoil, and to publish this. The first properly to understand and describe the basic technique of bird propulsion, i.e. the propellering action of the outer portions of the wing, especially on the downstroke, and also to publish this. He was the first to design and fit, probably in 189 and certainly in 1849, a light cycle-type undercarriage on a full-size aeroplane, and the first to state the definite proposal to gain speed on a takeoff run by using a wheeled undercarriage. He was the first to realize that there is a region of low pressure on the upper surface of a cambered aerofoil which contributes to the lift, and he also published this. He was the first to investigate an aeronautical streamlining to design a solid of least resistance, to publish his findings, and to use an instrument to test it. First to suggest an internal combustion engine for aircraft propulsion and to publish this. The first to formulate and to publish the basic aerodynamics of the fixed-wing aeroplane. The first to design a tandem-wing aeroplane. The first to design a biplane. The first to design, build and successfully fly a full-size multiplane. 
the first to receive and rightly the title of father of aerial navigation, the first to design and incorporate in a full-size aeroplane a separate and adjustable tail come come fin, tailplane come fin, and pilot-operated elevator come rudder. The first to incorporate pendulum stability in a model, first to incorporate in a successful model glider, a rudder working as an independent member of the tail unit, the first to design, publish, and fly successfully, a man-carrying but not, of course, piloted glider, incorporating the basic features of the modern aeroplane, i.e. fixed main wings, inherent stability in roll by means of the dihedral angle, inherent longitudinal and directional stability by means of a fixed adjustable tail unit a, uh, comprising a tailplane come fin and the light cycle type three-wheel undercarriage. He was the first to suggest that gliders be launched from balloons and the first to suggest stretched rubber powering modern aeroplanes, which of course has been the schoolboy's delight now for over a century. In airships, he has four firsts. The first to suggest and design a properly streamlined airship. The first to suggest and design a semi-rigid airship, uh, a classification which I scarcely dare put forth here because I know Dr. Walker doesn't approve of it. I'll, I'll take it out in my next lecture. <laughs> the first to propose compartmentation, separate gas cells for airships, and the first to design swiveling air screws for airships. That blast is an amazing invention. Finally, as an Englishman who may perhaps be thought biased in favour of a fellow countryman, I take pleasure, very great pleasure, in finally reading to you a very brief, just a few passages, shall we say, of a claim from overseas. Not one British voice is raised here. First is Alphonse Berger in France as early as 1909. The first aeroplane was conceived complete and everything essential for it indicated by its author. This inventor, the incontestable forerunner of aviation, was an Englishman. Thus it is necessary to inscribe the name of Sir George Cayley in letters of gold on the first page of the aeroplane's history. I think a lot of present-day Frenchmen would rather like Berger to read in his words, but there he was in 1909. Wilbur Wright, also in 1909, about a hundred years ago, an Englishman, Sir George Cayley, carried the science of flying to a point which it had never reached before and which it scarcely reached again during the last century. And then A.F. Zahm, in, also in America in 1913, England made the first substantial contribution to the science of aviation. Indeed, the contributions to the science of flight made by Sir George Cayley seemed to be the, first, the most radical, fundamental and original of any that have been recorded up to the present time by the promoters of mechanical flight. And then uh, our very good friend, known so many in this room uh, today, Charles Dolphus, this is the first of two quotations and perhaps the finest. He wrote this a long time ago, in 1923. The aeroplane is a British invention it was conceived in all essentials by George Cayley, the great English engineer who worked in the first half of last century. The name of Cayley is little known, even in his own country, and there are very few who know the work of this admirable man, the greatest genius of aviation. A study of his publications fills one with absolute admiration, both for his inventiveness and for his logic and common sense. This great engineer during the First Empire 
did in fact not only invent the aeroplane entire as it now exists, but he realized that the problems of aviation had to be divided between theoretical research, Cayley made the first aerodynamic experiment for aeronautical purposes, and practical tests, equally in the case of the glider as of the powered aeroplane. And then two more Americans, uh, a book used a great deal in my young days, but scarcely heard of today, Magoon and Hodgins in their history of aircraft, 1931. Sir George Cayley, the father of the successful navigation of the atmosphere by means heavier than air. It was he from whose amazing mind there sprang the definitive suggestion of a rigid plane mechanism driven through the air by propellers connected to an efficient source of mechanical power. And then the two last ones, one by Charles Dolphus and the other by Theodore von Kármán. And the Dolphus one I read you in French, it's so beautiful and concise and short. Sir George Cayley, le véritable inventeur de l'aéroplane. He just knocks the whole thing in one sentence. And Theodore von Kármán in 1954, the principle of the aeroplane as we know it today, that of the rigid aeroplane, was first announced by Cayley. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is my very small tribute to this very great man, and I hope uh, that someone will arise later on to carry this study of Cayley uh, further and further and further, because the non-aeronautical part of Cayley has been remained absolutely untouched, unscratched, and it cries out uh, for engineers to come and give him their proper attention, and then his great man will appear even greater in history than he does now. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com this content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.